Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the chance to study, for the chance to hear uh, not just some, some nicely strung words by a preacher, but to hear the voice of the living God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would do a work to still our own thoughts enough to be able to listen to heavenly wisdom as we turn the pages of scriptures, as we read words that were written long ago. I pray that your Holy Spirit would translate to our present need uh, what it is that is relevant and transforming from you. So please, God, bless us as you've done it in the past. Lead us to truth. Send us your Holy Spirit of truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Uh, So I come from California. Uh, That's where I grew up. And I grew up about an hour and a half southeast. No, yeah, southwest of Sequoia National Park. I don't know if you've ever been there. But there are some rare things in California. Uh, Aside from the smog in the Central Valley, um, there are some rare things called giant sequoia redwoods. Amazing, amazing organ. These are the largest living things on planet Earth, actually. Uh, according to some things that I've read. Largest living things on planet Earth. Um, I don't know if this gives you some perspective of just how big they are. Actually, this is a friend of mine, Brad Cacho. I don't know if you know him, but this is his Subaru uh, driving through Tunnel Log there um, in Sequoia National Park. I think he was trying to hashtag Subaru USA, trying to get some, some, some love from Subaru. Anyway, so, um, Tim, I think... Aren't you a GoPro guy? Is, are you the GoPro guy? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah? Right on. <laughs> Anyways, so, so this is Josh. Anyways, um, so you get an idea of how big these things are. Redwoods are amazing. Um, some, some people estimate they reach up to 300 feet. Some say over 300 feet. Some say that they are even 2,500 years plus old. Like, that's how, li- how long they live. And nearly 500 tons. These are huge trees. And you would imagine that trees this big would have even deeper roots, right? I mean, to to be able to to withstand winds and pressures for that long, at that height, you've got to be able to reach even deeper in order to to sustain that kind of life. But as I've discovered recently is that uh, it's actually very different. Um, Sequoias actually have a very shallow root system, relatively. Can anybody guess how, how deep their, their roots generally go below the surface? Right? They reach 300 feet high. What do you think, Jonathan? 20 feet. 20 feet. That's, a, that's a decent guess. It's actually 6 to 12 feet. 6 to 12 feet. The thing is that they reach broadly, and what happens is as they reach broadly, because they grow so close together, they end up interlocking and intertwining so that they're not just around each other, but they're actually feeding off of each other. The intertwined root system of the sequoias is what keeps them stable and secure in the midst of life's, um, in the midst of life's storms. That's how they survive. And I would admit that's how they, that's how they survive. And I think ultimately we can see ourselves as uh, sequoias too, in a way. Maybe we don't reach 300 feet high. Maybe we don't last 2,500 years long. Maybe we're not 500 tons either. <laughs> but the point is this. That intuitively, we all know that in order to survive life's storms, in order to keep growing, we actually need to grow close to each other. Do you follow me? We actually need those around us to support us, 
to keep us from falling. We all share this desire, whether or not we're introverted or extroverted or somewhere in between, I think we all share this desire to know and be known. I've learned recently that introverted and extroverted doesn't mean that you need people less than other people. (laughs) What it means is, is an introvert actually just requires more energy to meet that need for people than the extrovert does. And so whether or not your, your, your personalities are far on the extremes or whatever, the point is this, we all need people. We all need people. We all need each other's roots to keep each other stable. And beyond the desire for relationship, I would say, is the need for relationship. In other words, my ability to grow in Jesus, my capacity to go from strength to strength in Jesus is actually dependent on my connection with others who are growing in Jesus. This is huge. If you've ever been in a time in your life where you were not growing spiritually, ask yourself, how closely connected was I to people who were growing spiritually? And you'll probably find yourself missing out. But then if you think on the flip side, the times in which you were thriving spiritually were probably the times where you were surrounded by others who are also growing spiritually. I I, I resonate with this deeply. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking for all of us. But but the point is this, that my ability to grow in Jesus is actually dependent. It's dependent upon my connection with others. That's why Jesus uses the vine and branch analogy. Maybe you remember, abide in me and I in you. I am the vine. You are the what? The what? Branches, right? He didn't say you are the branch. (laughs) He said, you are the branches, okay? He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, plural. There was a collective, there was a collective collaborative dynamic to that by virtue of being connected to the vine. As a branch, I am connected to other branches. Vitally, organically, literally, (laughs) right? And this is the point, this is the point. When When we're seeking to grow in our relationship with Jesus, it's not just about what me, myself, and I can do to grow in my walk with Jesus. It's how can I be part of a context of community that allows me to keep walking and following Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we do this? For the next few minutes together, I want us just to look at the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus as he uh, lived out this, this dynamic in life. Because, I mean, this is, this is the dynamic of God. This is the very nature of God, right? God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. The reality is, if God is to be love, God is also community, right? Because God cannot be love if long before creation, in ages past before, before the creation of humanity, before the creation of angels, when God was all by himself, was he still love? Yes. Why? Because God himself is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? This is the very nature of God. So how did Jesus express this? How did Jesus abide in community? This is what we're going to look at for the next few minutes together. And the first dynamic is this. We're going to find three things that Jesus did when it came to community. The first one is this, that Jesus prioritized community. Jesus prioritized community. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, take a look at a few verses together. So you look at the life of Jesus. Oftentimes, I don't know if the movie in your mind is similar to mine, (laughs) but uh, when I imagine Jesus, I just imagine a a lone, solitary figure, you know, just kind of walking very elegantly and in a way of great authority, and people are just happening, they just happen to flock to him. 
But uh, generally speaking, I imagine Jesus standing alone, but, but the reality is that Jesus loved community. He gravitated towards community. And like we're saying right here, Jesus prioritized community. In Mark chapter 3, in Mark chapter 3, this is kind of the, the, uh, the onset of his public ministry. He's already gotten a following, but now he's appointing some specific individuals to be apostles. Beginning in verse 13. In verse 13, it says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. I'm reading from the New King James. I love that. Jesus himself wanted these individuals. And what happens in verse 13? And they came to him. I love it. Verse 14, Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So here is an official call to follow, right? A few chapters earlier in chapter 1, we had the individual calls. He called to Simon Peter. He called to Andrew, follow me. And here he's making the official appointment to be apostles. Come. I want you to be with me that I might send you out to preach. Now, who in this, in this passage, who did Jesus call? In verse 15, it says, oh, continuing about the call, and to have power to heal sicknesses, to cast out demons... And then it begins to list in verse 16 and on. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of what? How many of you guys would like sons of thunder to be on your team? All right, verse 17, uh, or sorry, verse 18. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So question, when Jesus called someone to follow him, did he call him to an individual, isolated relationship, yes or no? No. Right? Implied in the text, even though it says that Jesus called those he himself wanted, when he wanted them to be with him, he wanted them to be with them. Do you follow? When he wanted Peter to be with him, he wanted Peter to also be with Judas. When he wanted John to be with him, he wanted John to also be with Bartholomew. You know? This is a dynamic that Jesus was very intentional about. He prioritized it from the very, very beginning. I want you to follow me, not just as a lone ranger. I want you to follow me in the context of family. And I like that the very first thing they do is they go into a house. They go into a house. It keeps going. It's very interesting. At the very end of the chapter, there's a dynamic where in this house, uh, there's a crowd that kind of gathers. And it says in verse 31, look down in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, so apparently Jesus before his public ministry, came from a context of familial community, right? I think we're all born into a dynamic of familial community. I mean, that's just, I guess it's biologically impossible (laughs) to be born without a familial community. But here it is. They're, They're kind of identifying, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But notice what Jesus says. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. Who who is that? Who is he that he's looking at? He's looking at his disciples. 
the people that he called to be with him. And he says this, here are my mother and my brothers. What? Is he saying something about John's long hair or something? No, no. What's going on? He's saying, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is flip-flopping something. You know, this is a very similar culture where family is everything, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, when you've got a spiritual commitment to me, that spiritual fellowship can even take priority over and above a family relationship that doesn't share the same values. That's, That's big. For Jesus, community in a spiritually committed context was a priority, even over above his blood relationships. That can be a hard pill to swallow, I think, um, on, on several different levels, whatever context or framework that you're coming from. But the point is this, Jesus prioritized community. It was important to him. Do you follow this? Yes or no? Yeah? It was so important to him, and I would suggest this, it was so important to him that he not just spoke about this, he demonstrated it on Calvary. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, notice, he prioritized this for himself, but he also prioritizes for for others. This is in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is kind of outlining the implications of the gospel. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 is that famous chapter, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast, right? He's talking about forgiving grace, amazing grace. But notice that Paul, later on in the chapter, takes that amazing grace and demonstrates it to be a uniting grace. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile, people of cultural uh, uh, differences, great distinctions. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That middle wall of partition by the blood of Jesus has been torn down. That hostility that you have put up there, no, no, that's been brought down by the blood of Jesus. Community, unity, being together was so important to Jesus that he shed his blood for it. It is that important to Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus died not just for your forgiveness, but for your fellowship also? That's why you see the early church in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves continually to the doctrine, to the apostles' teaching, to, to prayers, and to fellowship. Why were they devoted to it? Because Jesus was devoted to it. He spilt his blood for it. All right? So Jesus prioritized community. What else? What else do we know? In the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus not only prioritized community, he pursued community, which is really an, a logical extension of the priority, Right? Um, This is the practical demonstration of how Jesus prioritized. He actually pursued it. He went after it. He carved out time for it. He sought it out for himself. He was intentional about developing and cultivating community around him. Um, And I would submit this, that, that Jesus, he actually prioritized the pursuit of community with a few over and above community with the many. You know? I mean, yeah, we, we see lots of stories where Jesus is surrounded by multitudes, like the one that we just read in Mark chapter 3. We see, you know, 5,000 being fed. We see 4,000 being fed and things like that. Jesus loved people. People loved Jesus. But his value, his intentional pursuit was the 12. <laughs> and even in the midst of the 12, 
there was the three, right? Peter, James, John. And even in the midst of the three, there was the one. He had a very special relationship with John. And so here's Jesus who prioritizes community and he does it in a practical way by pursuing community. I mean, you think about those times when Jesus himself needed friends. But what, what, in your understanding of the biography of Jesus, the life story of Jesus, what were those times when Jesus needed friends? Yeah, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's huge, right? Um, and I guess prior to that, a very similar situation, the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't know if you, if you remember that story. Jesus there in Matthew 17, it's recorded. I think it's also in Luke 9 and in Mark. Sorry, I'm, my sword is dull this morning. <laughs> Anyways, but in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9 for sure, Jesus goes up to a hill um, and, and there he asks Peter, James, and John to come up with him. And he is concerned about whether or not his ministry is getting through to people's hearts, you know. And so he, he asks for prayer. He tells the three to, to sit there, watch, and pray. But Garden of Gethsemane, even more so, even more so. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says his soul is deeply distressed, even to death. Yeah? And it's in that moment where he, he draws aside with those three, Peter, James, and John. And what does he ask those disciples to do? You guys remember? Watch and pray, right? Well, that's one of the greatest things that we can do as a community for one another. We can, we can pray for one another, pray with each other. And so there Jesus is in his time of great distress. He himself needs community. He pulls community to himself. Please help me out. I need community right now. But the question that I asked myself earlier this week was, was it only in times of great uh, duress and stress that Jesus needed community? How about the other times of his life? I mean, Jesus wasn't constantly, you know, under fire, so to speak. Well, I guess in a way he, he literally was. But, uh, but what were, was Jesus just only reaching for community only when he desperately needed it? And the truth is, no. That Jesus was constantly seeking community. In fact, um, and I guess the, the examples that I see throughout, throughout the Gospels is the times when Jesus gathers around a table with people for food. Do you realize that Jesus uh, expresses and, and extends community? He experiences community around a meal? <laughs> I don't know if that's like, if, if you feel like that, or the Olive Garden um, tagline, you know, when you're here, your family, that, that kind of thing. Um, but the reality is that for Jesus, so much of Jesus coming close to people was over food. In fact, there's a, there's a book that's written, Jesus Eats His Way Through the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> In fact, yeah, so let me just share a couple of, uh, of instances here. I mean, this is just like half a dozen or so uh, from probably 15 uh, references that you can find. Luke chapter 5, then Levi, uh, that's, he's also known as Matthew. Matthew Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Here's another one, Luke 7, verse 36. Actually, that, uh, Luke 7 comes right after the accusation. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then it says, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Interesting. Jesus didn't just eat with tax collectors and sinners. They were actually individuals of, of higher social status and religious status that wanted him to be with him. And at Luke 11... 
And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee, again, asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to, to eat. He went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. This is pretty awesome. Why? Because I'm not the only fan of food, right? <laughs> no, Jesus is, is someone who enjoys eating. Why? Is it just because of the pleasure of food? I mean, let's admit, God gave us an amazing uh, sensory system with thousands of taste buds, an amazing sense of smell. Yes, we can find great joy in food, but that's not why Jesus is always found eating. Jesus is always found eating because for him, food was fellowship. Do you follow that? Yeah? I mean, notice what the, what the Pharisees, again, are saying about Jesus' habit of eating. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees complained, saying, this man receives sinners and does what? Eats with them. In their mind, the people that you eat with are the people that you accept. Yeah? The people that you share a table with are the people that you personally welcome, not just in your physical space, but your emotional and spiritual space as well. Jesus was doing something very intentional. Why was he eating with everybody? Because he was receiving everybody. He needed community, and he wanted to extend that community. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. In fact, another book title here, A Meal with Jesus, um, basically identifying how grace uh, operates uh, through the meals in the Gospel of Luke. It's a pretty awesome book if you ever have a chance to. The subtitle is Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table, and it works through the major meals of the Gospel of Luke. And so here's Jesus' example. He, he, not, only, he not only prioritized community, he not only pursued community, but, um, but he did that practically around the table. You know, a, a friend of ours, Ashley, uh, when she first met us, she was like, wow, you guys like to, you guys like to eat with people. <laughs> like every time we would hang out, we would say, hey, you want to uh, have a play date or whatever? And then we would suggest having some dinner with it or some lunch with it. And Ashley, I, I remember Ashley saying, wow, you guys really like to eat. <laughs> and the point is this, yeah, we do. But practically speaking, it's our best time to connect with people. I mean, you think about your schedule. You think about how much is already in your calendar, and then you add on top of this, oh man, I need to cultivate community. That can be kind of uh, intimidating if you're a busy person. It can kind of be, it, it can almost be impossible. But the reality is that in my busy schedule, I eat 21 times a week at least, right? Right? <laughs> okay, maybe I'm the only one. Okay, so... So throughout a given week, I eat at least 21 times a week. Why not take some of that time to actually extend community, to embrace community? And so for us, we like to eat, yeah, but we really like to connect with people. And sometimes it's hard to carve out time outside of the normal things. So why not make the time with the normal things to make that part of community? Anyways, so here's Jesus. He, he prioritizes community. He pursues community. And lastly, he prays for community. He prays for community. Go with me to John, John 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17. And this is after three and a half years with his community, you know, with his 12, those that he has invested deeply in. In John 17, we'll begin in verse 17. If you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. All right. 
John 17, as Jesus is kind of basically in the shadow of the cross, he, he, he hears the mob coming, so to speak, who is going to arrest him. And in John 17, Jesus takes time to pray, not just for himself, but for his community. Community is such a priority for him that he, he himself prayed for community. What did he pray for? He prayed that this community, starting in verse, uh, let's start in verse 15, actually. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He realized that his community was going to be under attack. In verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So he prayed for a community that would be built around God's word, right? He prayed for a community that would be built around God's truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. He prays for a community that is founded on truth and that is sent into the world on mission. And in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be what? Are you following there? Verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that may, they may be one, just as we are one. Why don't you let that prayer sink in? As Jesus is praying for community that would be built on the word of truth, that would be sent into the world on mission. He prays that as they, they go about sharing the message of who God is, that they would do it in a way that is united, that he says is one, that is reflective of the oneness of the Godhead, that is community. He says that they also, this is verse 21, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, that without this community dynamic, the message of how good God is might be nice and pretty and it might make sense, but it wouldn't have impact unless the the individual that was bearing it was living in the context of the community that he was declaring. Do you follow that? I don't know if this is deep, like too too heady for a Saturday morning, but, but the reality is this. When we proclaim that God is love, I mean, you think about it. 28 fundamentals, however you want to delineate truth. No, no, no. The, the essence is this. God is love. And if we are proclaiming this in such a way that it makes sense logically, that it fits together prophetically, yet it doesn't, it's not demonstrated relationally, then that message falls short. Then the message falls short. That's why Jesus prayed for it. He prayed for community. Why? Because the declaration of his character depends on it. Jesus prayed for community. Why? Because he knew that community was going to be under attack. And this is not conformity. Please, don't, don't get us wrong here. This is not conformity at all costs. That's why he's praying earlier in the chapter, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. This is not just coming alongside everybody and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, let, let's give up truths in order to be one. No, this is a, a unity that's built around being sanctified or separated by the truth. And so this reality is, is the kind of community that Jesus prayed for. 
And what I love is that when you flip the chapter, or when you flip the pages over to the next book, in the book of Acts, you see this prayer being answered. You see this prayer being fulfilled. And I know, I know that Jesus was not just praying for that first generation of post-resurrection Christians. He was praying for generations on through the end, that they may be one, as he and the Father were one, so that the world would believe that Jesus is the sent one of God. Man, it's powerful. That's why Jesus prayed for community. And the reality is that that kind of community doesn't just happen on its own. It doesn't just happen as we try a little harder. It doesn't just happen as we rearrange calendars a little bit more. It's a supernatural work. That's why Jesus prayed for it. And I would say that's why Paul prayed for it. I don't know if you've ever done a, a study in the New Testament of looked at Paul's prayers in the epistles. But a lot of his prayers center around love abounding more and more, that they may be one. You know, all these kinds of things. Why? Because Jesus prayed for it, and that's why Paul prayed for it too. Paul knew, Paul knew that it was a supernatural work. So Jesus uh, prioritized it. He pursued it. He prayed for it. And, you know, before we even wrap up this, this morning, I just kind of want us to reconsider again, why is it? Why is it that, okay, we, we understand the value of community, but what is the connection? What is the connection between community and a strength-to-strength journey with Jesus? What is it about sharing? Why do I need to share life with others in order to have a, a vital connection with Jesus that's constantly growing? What, what would I be missing if I didn't have that community? Go with me to, um, to Hebrews chapter 10, very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. Just a couple more verses here and we'll, we'll wind it down. Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> I think this was a question that, uh, that believers were asking even, even while the apostles were still around. In Hebrews chapter 10, actually throughout the entire book of Hebrews, you get the idea that the very, the very problem that people were facing, at least the people that, that Paul was writing to in the book of Hebrews, is people were wondering if they should just kind of give up on this whole following Jesus thing. People were wondering if, if, uh, if this whole faith thing was even worth hanging on to. And in Hebrews chapter 10, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. All right, we're in verse 23. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. There, there is a sentiment amongst people that, man, maybe I shouldn't hang on to this. Maybe because, you know, uh, the, the culture around is very, very anti-Christian, very much persecuting the faith. People were wondering if, they, if it really was valuable to hang on to this confession of hope. But Paul is saying, no, hang on without wavering. And in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. That's huge. I think the verse actually speaks for itself. But just follow the train of thought. Verse 23. Paul says, hang on to that hope without wavering. Don't fall back. Keep hanging on. Well, how do I do that, Paul? Verse 24 answers the question. Consider one another. Don't just try to do this on your own. Don't just try to flex your spiritual muscles harder. Actually pay attention to each other. If you find yourself spiritually slacking, 
man, you, you will find that by putting yourself in the context of an assembly, right? He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. As we, as we uh, forsake the assembling of ourselves together, it's easy to fall off the map. It's easy to fall off the map. It's easy to jump off the track. But if we were to actually assemble with one another, to gather, to pursue community like Jesus pursued community, we'd be able to consider one another, to stir up love and good works, exhorting one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. See, the reality is that experiencing the fullness of who God is, my relationship with Jesus is maximized when I'm in relationship with others. You follow that today? My relationship with Jesus is actually maximized when I'm connected to others in community. And so that's why Paul is appealing to people, hey, if you really want to hang on to your faith, hang on to other people too. That's the point. That's the point. And that's why in in John chapter 13, when Jesus is in that upper room, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, by this love of one another, by this love in a way that's not just like the world's love, but by this love that is like my love for you, that is so self-sacrificing that that it will give and give and give until there's nothing more to give. When you love like this, by this, everyone will know that you are really nice people. No, no, no. By this, everyone will know that you serve really great potlucks. By this, everyone will know that your church is the best place to be. No, that's not the point. By this, everyone will know that you're my followers, my disciples, people who look like me. By this, everyone will know me. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Hmm. The point is this. The genuineness of our following of Jesus is not based solely on how we seek God. It is actually contingent on how we share life too. As we, as, as we seek to journey with Jesus, as we seek to become passionate followers of Christ, don't be one-dimensional. <laughs> don't be one-dimensional in your following of Jesus. Let your relationship with Jesus be maximized by your relationship with others. Let your following of Jesus not just be about seeking God, but also be about sharing life with one another. It's evidence of God's character. And also, it's, I would say this, it's evidence of God's power to transform the life. <laughs> because living in community is not natural, right? Uh, I think, uh, well, uh, what should I say? I guess it's natural to live in community, but it's not natural to preserve that community. I think we, we are very much more geared toward sabotaging community than we are to, to preserving community, right? Um, actually, next week, we're going to be talking about how to guard and protect community. And so, um, as we just kind of round this out, let's look at the example of Jesus and turn that into a simple appeal. If Jesus prioritized community, pursued community, and prayed for community, will you follow Jesus' example? That's, that's basically it. Will you follow the example of Jesus? Will you prioritize community? Will you pursue community? Actually, intentionally seek it out. Will you pray for community? Simple appeal. 
This is the example of Jesus that we've seen. The appeal is follow Jesus. <laughs> follow Jesus. How many today want to say, you know what, if that's what Jesus lived like, and if that's the, the, the hope of Christ in me, you know, Christ actually living out his life in me, then yeah, I want to do that too. I want to prioritize it. I want to pursue it. I want to pray for it. How many of you today want to say, yeah, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today, um, you know, we've kind of looked at a dynamic of Jesus' life that, that maybe we've seen, maybe we've observed, but haven't fully appreciated. Father, I know that there are times in my life where I have felt the need for community more, and I've appreciated that community more than others more than other seasons in my life. And so, Lord, I don't know what, what kind of season we are in right now, but I ask, God, that you would live out the life of Christ in me, that you would live out the life of Christ in each of us, that as we seek to follow you, it would not just be what we know about you, but how we relate to one another because of you. Lord, I want to pray for the power of the gospel Like we read earlier in Ephesians 2, that it was by the blood of Jesus that the two became one. Lord, I pray for the power of the gospel to generate and create and restore community. I pray that power of the gospel would be experienced of the two becoming one, of the middle walls of partition being broken down, starting in our homes. And they would also be experienced and manifest in our neighborhoods, God. I pray that the power of the gospel would be experienced in our church families, in our fellowship, uh, both locally and globally, Father. I pray that the power of the gospel would be experienced in our communities, Lord. I know that Jesus died for my forgiveness, but Lord, I, I thank you and I praise you today that Jesus died for my fellowship too. So please, demonstrate the power of the gospel in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, amen.